Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, it's, it's me, Laura. At the end of 2021, we here at Unchained introduced a new show called The Chopping Block, where insiders chop it up about the latest in crypto. And this show features four crypto investors who are Haseem Qureshi, managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, Tom Schmidt, partner at Dragonfly, Robert Leshner, founder and CEO of Compound Labs and managing partner of Robot Ventures, and Tarun Chitra, co-founder of Gauntlet and managing partner at Robot Ventures. In each episode, Haseeb, Tom, Robert, and Tarun will discuss recent events in crypto. They will be live streaming their conversations every other Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern and 3 p.m. Pacific on the Unchained YouTube channel. And we will then later release these conversations on the podcast. But the live stream is where you can participate in the chat, perhaps affect the conversation, and also catch all the visuals. So you've already had a chance to watch the first two or listen, and both of them are super fun and insightful conversations. I am now here to introduce this third episode and just generally explain to anyone who happens to be on the channel why I have these four people here discussing crypto events without me. But in the future, I will just leave them to dish about the latest in crypto on their own. So thanks to all of you for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoy listening to their discussion as part of your regular crypto news intake on Unchained. And now I will turn things over to Haseeb. All right. Thanks, Laura. Okay. So hey, everybody, welcome back to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give an industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros, uh, Tom is the DeFi maven and master of memes. Then we've got Robert, crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Uh, then we have Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And then we have myself, Haseeb, uh, chief hype man at Dragonfly. The four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. So Robert, this is, uh, we, we failed a couple times in trying to get this show started, but you were telling us in the pre-roll uh, about your new uh, NFT profile pick. Let's kick it off. So yeah, we're yeah pros last here. night I got peer pressured into buying a new NFT by Kane of Synthetics. It turns out that all the other DeFi founders were purchasing crypto coven NFTs and making them their Twitter avatars. And I love rotating Twitter avatars. Um, you know, it's something I do frequently. And so I leapt at the opportunity to buy the least attractive crypto coven, which I could find out of the entire collection, the most demonic, um, least traditionally appealing. And hey, Tom, can you throw it up on the screen? Yeah. 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 Let's, uh, let's take a peek at this, this bad girl, bad boy, yeah. bad, bad girl. Um, bad girl. Bad, it's a coven. It's a coven. Yeah. It's so a coven. I actually looked up, I didn't know what a coven was. I just sort of knew it was kind of a dark evil thing. But apparently a coven a is the plural witches. for witches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a plural of witch, which I did not know. Yeah, there we Ooh. go. Yeah. This, yeah. This is Looks nice. She's a beaut. Yeah. But the yeah. thing that makes this interesting 
is this is not a hexagon. And oh. I, what I find interesting is that, you know, I am um, somebody who recently paid Twitter $3 to get Twitter blue so that I could hexagon my photos. But I actually have multiple Ethereum wallets and you can only link one wallet easily to Twitter. So highly experimental oh. feature. There's been a lot of people on Twitter complaining about the ability to link wallets. There's people because they have to link it on their phone who are taking, you know, a QR code and like moving it to their desktop and like importing it into their Ledger Live app. It's just a mess. Um, so multiple addresses. Some of the profiles I use have the hexagon. Some of them don't have the hexagon. Um, obviously, this feature created a lot of controversy this week. A lot of non-crypto folks were really dunking on it pretty strong. But um, I'm proud to rock hexagon NFTs as profile picks and brand new ones that don't yet have the hex. I, I think yeah, we need so to the, take a minute yeah, and just appreciate how crazy it is that like Twitter actually added NFT like verified NFT profile pictures independent of the quality of the implementation, which I also have issues with. Like it's insane that this actually um, exists in, in, you know, in, in, in this year. It's awesome. I mean, the minute that Jack left, you know, and he's a Bitcoin maxim, <laughs> as soon as, as soon as he was gone, I mean, like weeks later, they're rolling out Ethereum integrations with the most popular Ethereum wallet providers. So that should say a lot about the sort of internal direction of the organization and where they want to go. I don't know if that's true. I mean, they teased this while he was still there. So it must have been yeah, that it was but just that under was wraps. Also dur- Think about how long it would take to depose a public company CEO. You think that that's like a, this is not, this is, this is not a guillotine French revolution, like throw the, throw them into the, you know, the guillotine. This, this is like, you know, the board has to like publish enough evidence and like they have to have 20 billion meetings. And then you have to go insult all your detractors on Twitter who, uh, probably convince your board to fire you. Dot 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 dot. Don't don't forget right, right, about right. The, don't, the body politic involved here. I understood. Yes, I, I I think it's likely that this was happening for a while. But I don't think. I mean, Jack. Remember, Jack bought the uh, Twitter NFTs on uh, what was that? What was that site that was doing oh, NFTs sent, for tweets? Sent, sent, sent. Right. Jack bought a. Yeah. You know, Jack bought something on Send. Like I don't think he's a diehard like you know screw the NFTs. Have you read Have you read the description of the really shitty decks that Square put out? I, I did, mean that thing that thing is that. like a worse RFQ than 0x V1 to 2017. Like it's actually like a horribly designed system. I, I, like I I can't oh, believe that. Oh, Tom used to be at 0x. That, so the important background no, 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 is no, no, V1. Anyway, I'm I'm saying worse than 0x V1. 0 that means they didn't even do any prior art. They didn't even like read the zero X paper. They're just like, oh, we had to reinvent science. And actually we're back in the stone age. Forget about electricity. Describe what squares Dex does looks like and how it works. Yeah. So it's a request for quote um, type Dex. So basically people who want to sell place orders and they place sort of like a thing that says like, hey, I want to buy 10 Bitcoin and I want it to be filled within like a certain amount of time. And then basically they have a sort of simple matching algorithm that happens off chain with trusted uh, sort of like uh, a federated trusted uh, network of people who handle the fiat on ramp and then also do the matching. Uh, It's not a DEX in any sense of decentralized BISC is more decentralized than this thing because it effectively requires KYCing all of the people who are doing matching as well as all of the people doing fiat on ramps. 
I thought it was a lot more hype and bluster than anything realistic. Like the paper just reads like someone just ignored all of the advances in automated market making and on-chain lending and derivatives that have taken place since 2017. It felt a little bit like when Visa or MasterCard put out like white papers about crypto. Uh, it's just like the, the story is that, look, they did something and they felt it was worth publishing. Like that's can, the story. Can then, Square do something? Is that the meme? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, so, I mean, look, long story short, it, to, to Tom's point, it is certainly a big milestone for the industry that NFTs have been legitimized to this extent. That now, you know, once Twitter integrates with Open, and, and by the way, it's also huge boon for OpenSea to be the place where it's, it's not even that Twitter's going themselves. It links directly to OpenSea. So you look mm. at someone's Twitter profile and it is basically an advertisement to go you know, sort of buy now on OpenSea, which is, to my mind, pretty incredible. Uh, so I, I think it, you know, to Tom's point, one, it's a, it's, a, it's a real moment of legitimization for the industry that it's going to be hard to look back on all this and say like, oh, you know, NFTs were just a flash in the pan. I think it's, it's fairly clear that NFTs are not going away, even if sort of the V0 of PFPs end up becoming less popular over time, which... Um, you know, there was, there was a thought actually, I mean, one of the interesting things that, um, uh, kind of bring into the, the kind of big news of the week was the market drawdown. And, uh, there's a, there's going to be a lot to talk through about all the different elements of what happened. But one of the interesting things coming in from NFTs is that NFTs actually did pretty well during the market drawdown, which was the most surprising thing. Cause you would think, you know, generally speaking, this market drawdown was, uh, incited largely by fears of, uh, the interest rates. Uh, set by the Fed, increasing faster than otherwise expected. And naturally, we talked about this last time, uh, is that when interest rates grow up, that generally means that demand for risk assets goes down because the opportunity costs, safer assets are now, uh, they, you know, they pay more because there's a, there's a higher interest rate on them. So you would think that like, okay, NFTs are the farthest out the risk curve you could possibly be. They're the riskiest things in crypto and therefore they should, they should have gotten totally hit. But instead what we saw was that NFTs held up really well. Uh, what do you, I mean, Robert, you're probably the biggest <laughs> NFT connoisseur of anybody at this, uh, uh, on this show. What are your thoughts about why this happened? Yeah. So they didn't necessarily go up in dollar terms. They went up in ether and crypto terms, right? They outperformed other crypto assets. And mm -hmm. I think the psychology of this is actually really simple. When ether got smoked, I mean, we watched it go from 4,700 to 2,200 you know, in a relatively short amount of time, you didn't see NFT prices in Ether terms drop by that much, right? And suddenly there's a lot of people who, you know, are holding assets who said, wow, like NFTs got a little bit cheaper in some cases in NFT in Ether terms or a little bit more expensive, but like they feel a lot cheaper, right? You know, all else equal, the price of an NFT just dropped by half. And so, you know, psychologically, you know, the ether you're holding, you may as well put it to work once it goes down in price, right? I and think there's a component of, of that to it, but like OpenSea is also posting all-time high volumes this week, which is generally not true of like the crypto market, right? Like if Bitcoin you know, falls in price by half, like generally you're going to see you know volumes could go down as well, just as a result of sort of the unit of account you know falling in, in value. Whereas NFTs, like these things are going down in U.S. dollar terms. But the, the exchange volumes are going up in U.S. dollar terms. So it's a really weird dynamic. But I, I do generally agree with you that, like, we're seeing a repricing in ETH terms, but not in dollar terms. Yeah. In terms of OpenSea's volume, you know, someone's going to have to double click on this. But I, I read an interesting thread online recently where someone was saying that, 
um, a lot of the uh, Dune queries that were being used to like generate these reports became inaccurate as you someone. Started... someone that was me. I, I yeah, wrote that. that Tom, that was Tom, said. <laughs> Tom. Break it down for us. Break it down. For all us. right. All right. Here's here's the deal. Here's the play by um, play. So you know, disclosure: Dragonfly recently invested in in Gem, which is a uh, NFT aggregator, NFT marketplace aggregator. So go to Gem, you'll see NFTs across every different you know ex- NFT exchange that that exists, including things like NFTX, and they help you bulk buy. So if you want to buy you know five crypto coven, you can do it in one transaction, and you actually Sweep save a floor. bunch of gas. Sweep the floor. Um, and so I was digging through some of their data, trying to see uh, who's using this thing, what are their volumes, blah, blah, blah. And I kept noticing weird discrepancies between the gem volume that I was seeing on, on Dune and the OpenSea volume that was on, I believe, Richard Chen. Uh, it has like the main OpenSea you know, Dune dashboard. Um, and so I was diving into it, and it turns out that the OpenSea dash that was initially made didn't really account for the idea of there being multiple fills per transaction. Um, so that's what's happening right now. Normally, right, you see an NFT on OpenSea, you buy, that's one fill, that's one transaction, it's done. But with something like Gem, uh, you can buy five or 10 different NFTs in a single transaction. And normally, okay, maybe this creates some double counting. In this case, the, just because of the way the, transa- the Dune query was written, it generated uh, a squared number of transactions. So five buys would turn into 25 buys and 10 buys would turn into 100 buys. And so uh, I basically put in a small patch. There's like a one-line fix to the, to the query. But it sort of caused the estimated, you know, OpenSea volumes to fall by like 30 or 40% depending on the day. So sort of a weird little quirk. You got you to gotta look in the data. You know, you got you to gotta do your own research. Um, but I don't know. I think it's a testament to like the rise of these, these aggregators. They're doing, you know, I don't know, 4 or 5% of OpenSea volume every day. And I expect that to keep going up as they just provide a really great experience for, you know, buying and selling NFTs. Yeah, there was a really good uh, thought piece as well by, I think it was Scott Lewis, who said, you know, the rise of more marketplaces from OpenSea to LooksRare to whatever is going to necessitate the rise of aggregators, right? The rise of aggregators is going to then enable the rise of more AMM liquidity pools for NFTs that wouldn't otherwise get any flow, right? Because no one's going to go to, let's say, NFTX or whatever directly, but if you have aggregators that become more popular in the primary use cases as you know how you interact and purchase NFTs, you'll be able to more easily interact with small niche or passive pools of liquidity as well. So I think in terms of the evolution of this, you know, there's a lot of design space for you know NFT AMMs and either niche or strategy specific like ways to create NFT liquidity that will start getting a lot of volume when. They might not have any retail, go to a website, you know, click a button, direct flow. So I'm excited to see where this leads. I think aggregators are going to change NFT markets radically. Um, and I think it's starting to. It makes them more yeah. fun. I mean, just sweeping the floor with one click makes NFTs more like ERC-20s in a lot of ways. It used to be incredibly difficult to do these floor sweeps, right? There was a lot of fancy, um, you know, kind of smart contract level stuff that you had to do in order to effectively complete a floor sweep in a single transaction. Um, and now that stuff is all getting commoditized. Like anybody can now do a floor sweep. So that it, it, it is a market transformation that I think we're very, we're starting to see the very beginning of. It feels to me like, you know, one of the things that we were expecting for a very long time. So, and you know, another disclosure, we're investors into one inch, uh, one inch is the leading DeFi aggregator of, uh, you know, trading ERC 20 tokens. And for a long time, we thought that, uh, DeFi and for the trading of normal tokens, especially at spot markets, that 
almost certainly it's going to transition to becoming majority driven by by aggregators as opposed to people going directly to the most popular front end like something like Uniswap. Um, and interestingly, that hasn't really happened. It's it's you know the aggregator market share has been stuck for most of DeFi somewhere between like ten to twenty percent market share, and it kind of floats around depending on what's going on in a given day. And you know our our belief is that probably that will trend upwards over time as the market gets more sophisticated. But right now, it doesn't really seem like that that uh, that that's happening. And the question is like for NFTs, do we expect that to change? Certainly, it's been the case that OpenSea has just run away with it. They've just been so completely dominant in NFT volumes. And the two-sided marketplace nature of OpenSea makes that work really well. But do you guys think that the market structure of NFTs is going to evolve such that it's going to be a winner-take-all where there's one OpenSea and nobody else can really stand up to them, or that there are going to be other challengers to OpenSea's dominance? I think uh, every every founder working on an NFT marketplace needs to read uh, The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen from Andreessen. Like, I, I think I see a lot of founders who are building new NFT marketplaces thinking they'll win on like tech. And really, that's not how you how you break through like, you know, uh, a, a liquidity moat, right? Like a two-sided marketplace moat. You need to get really aggressive going after one vertical and, and starting the liquidity there early. If you look at where do you actually see volumes that aren't on OpenSea? Um, you know, maybe outside of some, some of these AMM platforms, it's, it's, it's exchanges that are vertically integrated, right? Like the Punks marketplace or like um, Katana on Ronin for like Axie, um, things like that, where it's sort of specially designed for these assets and they sort of um, go after these assets alone. Um, I think that's where you can kind of start to see liquidity fragmentation. But I think for the most part, you know, teams are trying to compete on having a nicer UI, but if there's nothing to buy, you know, it's, it's not really uh, compelling enough to sort of overcome that, that activation energy um, to sort of break out the moat. Maybe this is actually a good segue to talk about, about looks rare. Um, I don't know what you guys have been, uh, if you guys have been looking at them this week. Yeah. So maybe I can uh, briefly summarize the looks rare story. Actually, uh, Tom, maybe, maybe you should, given how close you've been to it. Sure. Um, so looks rare is a I, I think now that OpenSea has recently raised at around at $13 billion, it has a huge bullseye on its back, and, and all these founders are looking for ways to go after this, this sort of giant. And one of the more popular things we've seen recently is the idea of vampire attacking OpenSea, or basically making a competitor and trying to suck up all of its liquidity and then eventually sort of overtake it. And, and LooksRare is sort of the latest and arguably most successful in this category, um, where they're starting out giving a big airdrop to everybody who's traded on OpenSea uh, with their own proprietary token and, and trying to get people excited and build a, a long-tail token distribution. Um, and then um, what LooksRare has implemented is basically uh, trade mining. So they're compensating people um, with fees for uh, trading on LooksRare with the idea of basically generating enough volume over time to slowly sort of wean off of, of OpenSea and sort of wean down on the on their rewards. And I think, you know, for the most part, they've been successful in generating volume. If you look at you know, day over day, they're doing several times more um, uh, volume per day than, than, than OpenSea, which is pretty Im impressive on the face of it. I think the maybe flip side of this, if you look at it, is that a lot of people are accusing them of, of, of wash trading or basically people washing on LooksRare to get their rewards because the rewards are basically you know, much higher than the fees that you pay to actually trade, um, which is kind of the, the peril that you need to avoid when you're designing like a, a trade mining program. Very briefly, for those who are not aware, wash trading is basically when you, when, when you essentially trade with yourself to give the impression of trading in order to, you know, get some kind of auxiliary benefit, right? So 
wash trading is generally illegal in normal regulated exchanges because you are sort of pumping up volumes with illegitimate trading activity. Uh, in the case of something like LooksRare, uh, the reason why people might be wash trading is because by trading on LooksRare, you can earn some of the LooksRare token. Um, and so it turns out that the LooksRare token uh, is, is priced such that uh, if you just list an NFT yourself and you trade with yourself to buy the NFT, um, even if you pay the 2% fee, or what is it, 2.5%, 2%? Something like that. I think 2%, um, yeah. Less 2%, than 2.5%, yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. Once you pay the 2% fee, um, you actually come out ahead with the looks rare airdrop. And so that's why you're seeing so much incentive for there to be all this wash trading. Um, and so to be clear, the accusation is not that the looks rare team is wash trading, but that random people who are trying to make money off of the looks rare token are wash trading. And one of the strongest indications of this wash trading that Tom, you were pointing out to me earlier, is that the collections that are seeing the most volume of trading on LooksRare are not the same collections that are being traded on OpenSea. So if you expected it to be organic volume, what you would see is that people are trading on LooksRare, the kinds of things they're trading on other platforms, right? It's the same kind of popular things. But instead, what they're doing is they're only trading collections that have uh, 0% creator fees. So a creator fee, what is, what is it called? The creator tax or what's, what's the name for it? Royalty. Yeah, creator. Royalty, royalty, royalty. royalty. Zero <laughs> creator royalty. Uh, I guess the term is important. Um, no, pe so these people definitely get offended if you say creator fee and not uh, royalties. So. Ex please excuse me. So the, the, the creator royalty, basically the idea is that if you transfer or you effect a sale of an NFT, the, the original uh, creator of that NFT will get a percent of every single transfer that happens hence. And, uh, you know, this famously, we talked about last week, what happened with Pudgy Penguins when they were wrapped to avoid this creator royalty. So what's happening is that the only collections getting traded in volume on LooksRare are these that don't have a creator royalty, uh, which is a dead sign that, okay, the reason why they're trading these things that don't have a creator royalty is because they don't actually care about trading the collections. They're just trying to mine the airdrop. So uh, what, what are I you actually, looking at, Tom? Uh, I was just showing off sort of exactly what you're talking about, looking at LooksRare versus OpenSea volume segmented by royalty versus royalty-free volume. And it's just like nine day. Like LooksRare is like, 99% royalty-free, and OpenSea is like 1% royalty-free. Um, I actually heard a crazy story recently, which is uh, Loot has the as a, as a uh, switch that could be flipped to, to basically add a royalty to, to Loot trades, and it's historically been traded turned off, um, but I think the Loot community got kind of pissed about people wash-trading Loot on LooksRare, that they basically very sneakily flipped it on before people could notice, and they earned like 500 ETH <laughs> in fees into the, looks, into the Loot treasury, so yeah, now they have like a few mil in uh, in ETH in the in the loot treasury to spend on whatever they want to spend on. So you got to be careful when you're when you're wash trading is uh, maybe wow. the lesson. How dastardly! How dastardly! Yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out this is the um, the chopping block, the number one place for wash traders to get their tips on yeah. which assets to choose. Yeah, looks for looks I think is is probably not the 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 primary example of how to take on the open sea monopoly right now. Um, although it's getting a lot of attention, it doesn't seem. Time will like. tell. Time is it a monopoly? That's true. I I I feel like it, it's not even clear that their monopoly status can be. We can't we can't really say that until the Coinbase thing launches, right? Because I feel like that's the Coinbase true. NFT, like if that if Coinbase is unsuccessful with launching their NFT platform, then I think it's like crown open sea the monopoly. But I I feel like we have this kind of looming big event that we haven't really figured out how to factor in. And it does seem like Coinbase is trying to get a lot more like celebrity involvement and sort of more uh, mass market appeal, I think, than like a lot of what's on OpenSea. And so we'll see if that like has like an NBA Top Shots like 
effect or not. I do think like one thing that's interesting is like the towards the aggregator market is one of the benefits of being non-fungible, right? Is like you can you buy portfolios of things, right? So it's like a real estate investment trust. I bought a portfolio of houses. In this case, it's like I bought this portfolio of NFTs. The problem is most like pricing mechanisms are hard to have a lot of liquidity in if you have too many different types of bundles, right? Like, oh, I want like arbitrary subset of bored apes. Like I want all the apes with this quality, but not this quality and this quality. And as you add more of those, you kind of blow up the state space in a way that makes it like much harder to source liquidity for every single bundle. But I think the interesting thing that's to to the point of to Robert's point with the aggregators is sweeping the floor is sort of like a bundle that's random to some extent, right? It's a bundle of subsets of the NFTs that's like somewhat random, somewhat signal. And like somehow that's yeah. And and somehow that's like the market has cohered on that bundle as being like worth buying one unit of roughly. And so I think the the NFT market will probably standardize to some extent a little bit like the way the real estate market or commodities markets do, where there's just certain types of bundles that get bought as like a unit, like a floor price type of thing, right? It's like I bought like, you know, if you think about oil, there's like three different types of oil futures you can trade. One that's like the really shitty oil, one that's like the medium grade and one that's the high grade. But like, what does it mean to be the shitty grade? There could be some good batches and the shitty grade ones just they all came from the same place and i kind of think we're going to see a lot more market structure in nfts that looks like commodities and real estate and isn't we'll that what, what nftx was doing i mean nftx yeah. was was doing exactly this and it it kind of i think they were a little early wasn't designed very well they were they definitely were early. early they were early and like i i think this idea of like the floor being the right portfolio was just like not really totally known at that time like like everyone was just like oh you want like a equally balanced portfolio of punks but when you have punks the max minus max over min price ratio being like a hundred or something it's like that not really right like that is definitely yeah that's definitely true that's definitely true they they got a lot of things wrong um but i do recall nftx having like tiered uh rarity indexes for some of the different nft collections but yeah, I, I just think it's, early. Yeah. it's just like it's hard to figure out what bundle people want, right? OpenSea right. memed the floor into a bundle, and like that—that that was actually the sticking point in my mind for them, and why everyone is instead trying to copy by, by like these vampire attacks that incentivize floor trading on aggregators. Yeah, I agree with you that the the one potential savior here is Coinbase, Coinbase's NFT marketplace. But I worry that we've just seen such bad execution so far from everybody, like all the traditional companies trying to get into NFT marketplaces. I mean, I was I was worried for a while about the FTX's NFT marketplace, and I haven't heard a peep about it since it went live. And the news newsflash: if you're trying to make Solana NFTs the hallmark of your NFT platform, spam issues will make it very hard to be usable. Yes, indeed. Uh, okay, that takes us back. So let's rewind a bit, move away from the NFT conversation and go back to the carnage that we, that we saw this week because it brings us actually in quite, quite nicely into some of the stuff that you were talking about. So a lot of stuff during the market downturn, we saw a lot of stuff break. Um, we actually saw MakerDAO, uh, which is the largest lending protocol on Ethereum uh, by, by TVL, 
we saw MakerDAO get very dangerously close to basically having a massive liquidation that would have totally, you know, caused the entire market to buckle. I think it was something like $600 million of Ether that was extremely close to getting auctioned off. Uh, we saw Ohm, uh, Olympus Dow, which we've discussed a few times before in the podcast. Uh, we saw Olympus Dow draw down to something like $60 up from a high of near what? A thousand, something like that. Uh, more. so it, you know, yeah, more yeah, than yeah the market cap, and so the market cap is down from four billion to five six hundred mil right now. So, um, yeah, quite a drawdown for for Ohm. Yeah, and so basically, what you've seen is that every instance of on chain leverage, which you know, Olympus DAO is a good example of sort of implicit on chain leverage, uh, but then of course, you know, Maker DAO and, and and many other lending protocols on chain are the same thing. We saw lots and lots of both massive drawdowns and some near death experiences. Uh, in, in other parts of the market. What were some of the things that you guys were paying attention to during the market drawdown that you thought were interesting? Well, MakerDAO was fascinating, um, mostly because you had to see Rune, the founder of MakerDAO, get on Twitter and start saying, we have to contact one specific borrower. Like, that was absurd. Solend had major issues on Solana. Um, Solana had uptime issues during you know, a disastrous market environment, which, you know, if your blockchain's not live, DeFi doesn't work, right? And that's fine if you're a DEX, okay, you can't trade, boohoo, like wait 12 hours and trade. But if it's a protocol that relies on risk and collateralization and like leverage and borrowing, if your blockchain is not up, bad things happen, right? If you can't be liquidated where liquidations aren't orderly or the price feeds are off or delayed or whatever, you know, you're going to get events that ruin traders and users. Um, so, you know, we're in our infancy of seeing the interactions of DeFi on unstable platforms. It could have been a lot worse. You know, there's not a plug, but, you know, a couple years in, a protocol like Compound was like the most boring and uneventful participant. You know, it had like $15 billion of liquidity. And like, you wouldn't have even noticed anything like during the market sell-off, like massive liquidations, but like everything was just like completely humming, right? I, I think the areas of the market that are newer are going to see the most craziness. You know, it was a little surprising, you know, to see Maker sort of running around, but the system at Maker performed correctly. It was just the size of a position that was at risk. Um, so I think we'll continue to see people talking about DeFi, like is it working during massive market sell-offs? in the newer corners of the market. Next time it might be, you know, is DeFi on Avalanche working? You know, now that it's large enough, <laughs> you know, there's the risk of it not working. Um, so that's what impressed me was that in general, the Ethereum ecosystem performed pretty well, um, albeit one massive, massive borrower at risk <laughs> in MakerDAO. But like, aside from that, like it was uneventful, you know? Yeah, I, I think... In some respects, this kind of reminds me of like March 2020 for Ethereum when it's like the Maker Oracle broke and then, you know, Maker had to issue a bunch of more MKR. And so it was sort of like that was sort of like a little bit of a growing up moment for like Ethereum DeFi. And I think maybe this is sort of the equivalent for like Solana DeFi. Like I think in you know Solan's case, again, disclosure, we're an investor. It wasn't like, you know, their fault it was like the Pit Oracle, which everybody in Solana uses like couldn't get through because there's so much transaction spam. And so it's like thinking through, you know, how do you make both the blockchain more robust, but also, 
you know, adding more, more backup me- mechanisms um, in, in the past. Because I think like, you know, it, luckily in this case, it wasn't too bad. And they like refunded people who got liquidated because of the Oracle. But like, you know, in the future, it might not be so lucky. Maybe it's going to be even, you know, too large to sort of fix as we saw with like Ethereum this, this time around. You know, if uh, this, this you know, maker liquidation happened, that's 600 mil in sell pressure on the market. I don't know if there's actually like uh, enough to sort of, you know, mend that back up if, if some of that is, is liquidated incorrectly. I, I, I do want to correct you guys a little bit on the $600 million liquidation. I feel like it, I actually almost feel like Rune overhyped it because, uh, you know, I, we spend a lot of time monitoring uh, liquidity on different markets and how much slippage you can actually tolerate when there are liquidations in this world. And it's a, it was roughly about $60 million every 30 minutes. That was like the max um, that the auction was actually doing. So it would actually auction off over six hours. And at that that sort of time, uh, there was roughly like close to a billion dollars of open liquidity for ETH. Um, so doing sixty million every thirty minutes was not so. It's not so crazy. It actually would have been fine. I think Rune maybe in order to wake up Mister Seven Siblings uh, decided to overhype it as six hundred million dollars in three seconds. But if anyone has ever bothered reading the Maker auction documents or read the code. It can't do that. So I just want to point out that everyone... Very good fact didn't, check. You didn't, Much you didn't check the chain. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you no, it's, it, it's interesting. So I, I, I agree um, with what's been said. Prior. I, did not, I did not know that about the, the maker auction, so I'm glad that we got the reality check there. The, on, the, on the Solana side, I thought, I, I thought it's a very good point. Like, look, Ethereum's been through this. Every major protocol on Ethereum went through March 2020, which was much more violent and much more sudden than what happened uh, this week or, or uh, you know, earlier over the weekend. I think for Solana, what it showed us is that, look, Solana is not done. Like, it's not a finished protocol. And one of the most obvious failures of Solana that contributed to so much of the, of the uh, turmoil that happened over the weekend was that Solana doesn't have a fee market. And if you don't have a fee market, this shit is just going to keep happening. So for those who are not aware, right now on Solana, Solana does not have a gas model. There is no metering that happens the way that it happens on Ethereum. Of, oh, if you do this much transaction and then you have to pay this much gas. Solana has a fixed fee for every single transaction. And if you are consuming a lot of gas or a little bit of gas, it doesn't matter, you pay the same fee. Even if you want to pay more, you're like, hey, my vault is about to get liquidated and the entire market is going to get screwed if I don't top up this vault. Like, you know, let's say you were the maker guy who was just like, look, I, everyone is yelling on Twitter for me to top back up. Everyone wants me to top back up or I'm pith. And I'm like, everyone wants me to submit this Oracle update. I'm willing to pay a hundred bucks to get this thing on chain, but you can't because it just so happens that there is no way to tell the blockchain that, hey, my transaction is really important compared to everybody who's like trying to snipe cheap NFTs because the NFT markets are not getting repriced. And so as a result... People are spamming, you know, the, the, the transactions that are getting through are not the most important transactions. That's why fee markets are so important. Basically, when you don't have a market, what you get is you get bread lines. You get people sitting and waiting because there are, because there's no marketplace. So people who have the most willingness to pay cannot actually get their transactions done. That is why Solana failed. Solana did not fail because it's not fast enough or it's not whatever. It failed because it doesn't have a fee market. And that's what caused this over congestion of spam transactions because the spam transactions don't cost anything more than they normally cost during a, during an outage. So all the people who are running Solana bots trying to snipe AMMs are still running those bots while everyone else is running for their dear life. And 
that just can't, you know, it, it, that's just a sign that look, your blockchain isn't finished. So we had, uh, so we, had I, we had a ton of news here. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tarun. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing to this, which is like, you know, the interesting thing is that in a lot of ways, the no fee market or like, I mean, they do have a sort of fee market, but it's like, it's not like a mempool, right? There's not actual like con congestion at that level. You do still have to pay a transaction fee. And it does flo float somewhat. It's not perfectly constant, but it's it's kept artificially low. So you, you might as well treat it as a really low constant fee. And the the interesting thing is like, it, A, it looks like normal finance, right? Like this is exactly, when I worked in HFT, this is like what happens on the days everything goes down, which is like five routers at the CME are down. Oh, except for like three people who found this one extra route through the data center and they're over everyone because they're causing everyone to get take a huge liquidation. This actually looks very similar to like traditional, I mean, maybe not totally surprising, but this actually really does look like what the CME looks like. This looks like what Urex looks like. This looks like, you know, like traditional trading, less less like crypto trading. And the other thing that's interesting to note, I think, about the DeFi protocols on Solana is that a lot of the people who are who've built them, you know, I don't think they 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 they're a lot of them are coming from from high frequency trading. A lot of them are coming from sort of like Fang Manga, whatever it's called now, uh, places. You know, I think they didn't spend time understanding why Ethereum DeFi kind of evolved the way it did. They didn't maybe do the anthropological and like historical survey of like why did this Uniswap thing come in? They just kind of were like, oh yeah, we're gonna make something better that looks like what our systems look like in our old jobs. And in the process, what happened is people made a lot of DeFi protocols that have a ton of transactions needed to do a single action, right? So in Ethereum, one of the reasons Uniswap really beat out everything else in, at, at that time in late 2018, early 2019, partially was it only took one transaction to do an arbitrary size trade, right? In an order book, you can't do that. You, you, you may have to send like tens, twenties, thirties of transactions to clear out the order book to make a huge trade that might be like a liquidation. And something like Pith, another, another, which is, I think, a really nice protocol. It's like a very clean protocol mathematically. It has infinitely more transaction volume generated on chain than a chain link or a, a, a traditional kind of simple spot price oracle because it does this confidence interval calculation on chain. And so there's a sense in which a lot of the DeFi protocols on Solana were built with this idea that, hey, transactions are really cheap. Who cares? Do as many transactions as you need, regardless of scenario. And that kind of ignores a lot of what people learned in ETH DeFi, right? Like the Ether Delta, you know, the, a lot of the Pith failure does resemble a little bit like a lot of the Ether Delta failures in January 2018. And so I, I think like this is a learning lesson for that ecosystem in terms of hey, like there's a reason that some of these inefficient things are done in ETH DeFi. It's not because like the developers are dumb necessarily, right? Like it is actually because there are, there are these Ether extreme some cases. Some of us are dumb. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying like, it's, it's, it's like, uh, there's a lot of like hubris in that ecosystem sometimes of like people like, oh, like, yeah, these ETH people are all dumb. They don't, they made this like kind of inefficient thing. And I, I think like sometimes it does, it does help to make sure you understand the, history and, and anthropology of why we, you know, like why those mechanisms evolved. I think the Solana ethos has done a lot to convince people that Solana is not even a blockchain, that it's basically just a computer and you can just run an ordinary program on it and expect perfect uptime. You can expect availability. You can expect, you know, the, 
the idea is that like, well, everything's, you know, 400 millisecond or 500 millisecond blocks. So you don't even need to think about the kind of trade-offs that someone on Ethereum would normally think about, about liveness and availability. And that leads to things like today or not today, but you know, this weekend during the market drawdown. Like if, if you're building a financial system, it, the first rule, the first principle rule is that it's got to be robust in the times when it most matters, which is of high volatility. And everything in Ethereum is built with that in mind because everyone remembers March uh, 2020. And Solana wasn't even around in March 2020. So this is kind of the first time that they've actually gotten punched in the gut of, hey, when, when shit goes really haywire, you're just another blockchain. And you behave exactly like one and that, oh, crap, the market's going nuts and there's downtime and like no one can get their transactions through. And suddenly the things that we thought were buttery smooth are exactly the things we, we are not working and the things that we most need. That being said, I, I do want to give them a lot of credit for actually, you know, I think I, I was, you know, in the in the discord throughout the kind of like their re- resolution of things. And I, I, you got to give them a lot of credit for actually getting the hard fork through like in EOS times, like EOS, the EOS developers never showed up and, and like no one cared enough to actually go like fix things and like try to make these updates. And I don't think it's like malintentioned. That's true. I want to give them a lot of credit for like taking a really shitty situation and, you know, actually like kind of pulling through. And, and like, I, I think they understand these problems, right? Like at the end of the day, they just wanted to build the fastest thing ever. And unfortunately, the fastest thing ever does look a little bit like Equinix NY5, right? It doesn't really look like geo distributed blockchain as much. And you're, you're making this trade off. That's fine. But I, I do think like they, there there is a sense in which the developer community in Solana is actually extremely strong, and I I, I think like I I'm I certainly think there there it doesn't feel like the EOS days where like when any, anything bad would happen on EOS, everyone would just point fingers at each other and like no one would push an upgrade and no one would fix their protocols. So I I I want to give a lot of like you know. To all okay, the so devs I, who, I, I who, up, who are up 24 hours a night. Like, yes. For, for the, Look, I, lots I, of mad I props, mad props. Absolutely <laughs> nothing but respect for the Solana core team. What they've done in terms of building performance and building a great community has been amazing, right? And it's early days. And it's very, very clear. Like, look, Ethereum has gone through so many face plants in its history that like, look, every blockchain is going to go through that, especially when you're rebuilding the stack um, piece by piece. So I I, I, I think you, you make a, a great point, Tarun, and I don't want to belittle the work that any of these uh, developers or entrepreneurs are doing in trying to build robust systems. So with that being said, my hope is that the Solana ecosystem is going to learn from this and realize that like, look, uh, you guys are a blockchain too. And the problems that every blockchain worries about, about, you know, sort of uptime and and scalability and decentralization and blah, blah, blah. Like you got to worry about that shit too, because no matter how high your TPS is and no matter where you sort of sit on that trade-off spectrum, at the end of the day, when markets are going down 25% in a single day, like every blockchain basically looks the same and they all suffer from the same problems. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, like I said, there, there's sometimes in history in this industry where we've seen like chains that was their disappearing event effectively. And, and I don't feel that way. I really it's do feel like the, the community, no, came, no, no, no. the community really came in here. It's definitely not the case. I mean, we're still seeing, you know, there, there was a lot of press coverage around that time. There were some, uh, there were some like traders who were going and talking to all the, Press outlets are like, oh, I, I can't believe that Solana is not being performant at the time when it most matters. Um, and that felt a little, um, it felt a little BS to me um, because like, okay, look, you know, it's, yeah, like everything is doing terribly right now. Like what, what, why would Solana be any different? 
And all this stuff is obviously very new. And, and look, the Solana team has been relatively clear in saying, look, this is beta software. This, you know, the blockchain's not done yet. So, you know, chill out, like, you know, use it at your own peril. It, it does make very clear that like, look, the, the, the Solana story, people are now, I think, coming to appreciate that like the Solana story is not quite as, it's not quite as magical as was originally portrayed. To, to, to kind of try to get a system with this kind of performance is going to come with downsides. And you're going, to, you're going to see some of that come up, especially when you build an entire stack from scratch and then try to put billions of dollars of TVL into it. Yeah, one thing that is kind of interesting that like I, I'm kind of hoping the next we see in the next crash when there's like more bridges. And, <laughs> the next like, crash. There's always a crash. You're, you're the only on. one who's looking forward to the next crash at this point, Tarun. I'm just saying there's always you can't you can't like assume there's not going to be one. There will be one in some finite time, right? But True. the 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 I, I guess the, the the interesting thing is like once we're in this more interconnected, interweb looking set of blockchains, like they're all there's like way more volume in the bridges, higher throughput. It'll be interesting to see if like these the the networks that are less spam resistant somehow have all their flow sort of sort of like pushed off into the ones that are more spam resistant and you have this sort of like in very calm times you can like use these kind of solana style things and then the moment things are bad like everything just crosses and goes to like the higher fee networks um, i mean wouldn't that happen with like bitcoin and uh lightning or bitcoin and BSV maybe. <laughs> if if, if we saw enough, if you actually saw real usage there, sure. But like the usage there is just exchanges dumping their coins or moving between wallets. Right? Yeah, no, it's like there's not many real, real like Bitcoin users other than exchanges now and custodians nowadays. Tom, Robert, any thoughts on the Solana drama? Well, it won't be the last time there's Solana drama. Um, just like any time there was Ethereum drama, it wasn't the last time there was Ethereum drama. You know, I think. There's going to be some growing pains for Solana for Ethereum as it migrates to F2, you know, and L2s. I mean, you know, blockchains are fragile, right? No more, no more is, E2, by the way. You're not allowed to say that. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it consensus layer or something now? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know if you got the memo, Robert. Don't make me change my ways. Um, <laughs> but like the magic of Bitcoin is that it's not fragile, right? But, you know, smart contract platforms are exponentially more complex and they are still fragile right and so you know i think it'll be a decade before like these systems really harden to the degree that we look at bitcoin as so more drama ahead i i think of it a little bit in in sort of like the in traditional software you know i feel like there's always this sort of tension between doing things sort of the like native way and then people saying well like that like it's really hard and complicated Let's build an abstraction that allows any developer to come on, right? This is like Electron or like the um, Adobe thing, like in the, in the early mobile days, we're like, oh, we just write it in like, you know, uh, Flash script and then you can deploy it on like iOS and Android. And it turns out like, actually, that's really hacky and inefficient and bad. And then after a certain point, you end up just like rewriting it natively. I feel like Solana is in a similar point where they're like, yeah, just like, you know, it's just like, you know, your normal HFT job, just bring the same exact architecture People are discovering, hey, maybe this isn't super efficient and then sort of finding ways to actually like, you know, basically speak um, to, to the way the system's actually designed. And so maybe that's kind of we're going through a similar path right now with 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 crypto. Fair enough. Well, I think the one thing we can all agree on is that uh, it's still early days and there's a lot more that uh, we're going to learn about all of these platforms uh, over the coming years. Um, you know, Solana hasn't been out for that long. And so. Uh, if anything, it's a testament to how amazingly that team has done to get as far as they have and to get the attention. And 
Um, usually the history of technology tells you if there's one thing that people get mad, keep getting mad at, uh, it's probably going to win at something important. So, oh, Can I add one, ahead, one last market comment? Please. Cosmos ecosystem really killed it during all of the turmoil. Yeah, Both what happened? Why? And, and also transaction-wise. Osmosis had like almost 10x its ever <laughs> volume it ever had and and was like totally fine. Like, <laughs> is there is there a broader story beyond just like nothing in Cosmos broke? Uh, I mean, I also just think it's actually hard to short things in Cosmos other than Adam. <laughs> there's, 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 there, there's a market okay. structure issue there okay, too, okay, right? Okay. But 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 I do think the interesting thing is like the validator set stood up. Mm -hmm. It was a, this was like probably the biggest test because Cosmos never really had that many apps that were using IBC. Um, well, Luna got hit pretty hard, right? But Adam and and um, some of the other things in the Cosmos ecosystem did well. Yeah, Luna got hit. That's more for economic reasons for Luna, not for not that mm. like the Luna validator set had issues processing things. But I think this was the first time we saw IBC like cross chain bridges really get like hundred x the volume of their normal thing and see if they can actually survive. And and so I I think that that was actually we should give a shout out. I want to give a shout out to the Cosmos ecosystem for for having a good good time. Well done to Cosmos. And so uh, as we as we close out this episode, obviously markets are still pretty choppy out there. In the spirit of not offering investment advice, not being investment advice, where do you guys think the market is going from here? Uh, we'll just go around real briefly in one sentence. Tom. Uh, I, I am definitely not uh, the person to be asking about this. I mean, I suspect we are close to bottoming out. I think there's probably still more room to go. But you know, overall, I was saying in, in our, our team meeting this week, like, it's very, it feels very different from 2017 in my mind in that you actually have, you know, real usage of these, of these protocols. There's like actual, you know, real traction. I mean, even just like the Twitter and thing, thing this week. So it's not like we're going to zero, um, but I certainly think we're seeing secular repricing um, within, within the crypto as well as the sort of, you know, macro issue that we've been talking about. Robert? You know, crypto is an asset class, just like equities and fixed income and all the macro, macro things. Right now across the board, I mean, for every asset, price is down, volatility up, implied volatility way up, right? So, you know, I, I don't think that crypto is unique. I don't think a lot of the sell-off is even because of, you know, specific properties of crypto. I think it's just because risk assets in general have just gotten smoked. And liquidity, whether it's in equities or crypto, is the same thing, Right. And more and more, there's interconnectedness and shared ownership between equities and crypto, right? Whereas five years ago, that really wasn't the case. So I think in general, you know, what equities do, crypto will do more than people expect. I think that correlation is probably higher than most people expect going forward. I think, you know, it's probably going to rebound because risk assets generally always do rebound. You know, and I don't think if there is a bear market that it's a you know, bear market that's unique to crypto, I think it would probably be shared and coupled more closely with other asset classes, especially now, especially with, you know, inflation and the Fed is like the primary drivers of everything. So crypto is less unique than you think. Okay. Well, I did just see that Daniele of Wonderland got liquidated for $18 million. So uh, that seems like an interesting observation to note uh, <laughs> in this chat, since we mentioned Ohm earlier. I, I, I think uh, 
this is the year of uh, the next all L1, right? Like there, there's this really good, I, I thought this was like quite good podcast with Hasu and, and Suzu on, you know, this like the mercenary alt L1 rotation of like people who have big size, like Sue kind of like keep moving to whichever new L1 um, has like new stuff. And I, I think like this does seem to be like, at least from the DeFi standpoint, the, the year of near and Cosmos. I think they're going to, I think the Saluna Vax 2021 becomes Cosmos near 2022. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of um, stuff on Aurora, like starting to actually exist. And I, 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 on overall market structure, I don't know. I, I, I'm not totally, I don't think I have like some great prediction, but I do think in those two ecosystems, I, I you know, it seems like there's a lot more, you know, growth happening. So my very briefly, I think that, um, Probably we'll see crypto give a little bit more away as interest rates creep up, but I don't think it's going to be too much worse than where we are today. Um, but yeah, my view, similar to Robert's, I think that you're going to see crypto kind of stapled to, you know, growth tech stocks for a while um, until I think eventually you're going to see a decoupling, but I don't think we're there yet. And um, but overall, I think, like Tom said, fundamentals look good. And so uh, although I think you're going to still see private valuations really high, I think the public market is going to be relatively cheap for a while. Um, and at the end of the day, I don't think rates are going to be elevated forever, especially, you know, kind of going into midterms. There's going to be demand for the S&P to bounce back. And I think uh, political positioning being what it is, I don't think that uh, either party is going to be accepted, is going to be happy with rates being super low and the S&P not doing great, you know, over the next few years. So, yeah, actually, do you think rates will go up at all? Just quick binary question yes. yes rates will definitely go up from where we are right now i don't Do know i think so I, 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 I i'm pricing in a kayfabe from from uncle powell <laughs> i would bet you any amount of money that rates get hiked at least once this year maybe marginally but like i don't i i, I kind of feel like the should market we, should we is make a bet live right now i'm i'm very market, pro this the market is trying to manipulate powell by crashing <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty bad way to manipulate it i just like have been getting a lot more of a sense that like inflation do- seems to be very heterogeneous right now or like, like the crash has caused people to measure inflation very differently and it seems to not be like this like the the transitory narrative thing has clearly like there's some truth to it it's not totally a lie and and i'm i'm, I'm not convinced it's going to be like this like big interest rate increase because like some sectors of the economy are like really crashing. Okay. Well, in the interest of time and also in the interest of subject matter, I think we'll have to revisit this as the year goes on, but uh, this, this expect this to continue to develop in future episodes. So for now, thank you everybody. And uh, we'll be back again in a couple of weeks.